This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Cry podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the fourth episode of season nine. Before we get into it, let's break the ice. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. True facts that sound like bullshit. Did you know the Greenland shark, a large sleeper shark that inhabits the North Atlantic and Arctic Oceans, has the longest known lifespan of all vertebrate species? Their lifespan is estimated to be between 250 and 500 years. Now it's time for the show's final opening icebreaker segment. Random quote of the day. You're more likely to drown in the sea of sameness than get eaten by a shark while navigating new waters. That was said by Amy Jo Martin, an American entrepreneur. This case was suggested by Nick Carroll via BritishMurders.com's contact page. We're in and around the town of Concert this week, located within the northeast county of County Durham. Here are five quick-fire facts about Concert. Number one, Concert was the first town in the world to have a Salvation Army Corps band. The band was formed in December 1879 and went out on the streets playing at Christmas. Number two, well known for its steel industry in the past, Concert provided the steel that was used in the building of Blackpool Tower. Number three, the town is perched on the steep eastern bank of the River Derwent, a tributary of the River Tyne, and was the cradle of the British steel industry in the 17th and 18th centuries. Number four, Rowan Atkinson, star of the Blackadder and Mr Bean comedy series, was born in concert in 1955. And number five, from 1974 to 2009, Derwentside was a local government district whose main towns were Concert and Stanley. Derwentside even had its own flag. As of the 2021 census, the estimated population of Concert was 30,695. Let me quickly advise you that this podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. As always, listener discretion is advised. Picture the scene. It's the summer of 1991. You've just sat down at your dining table and are about to start eating your tea after a hard day's grafting at work. You whack the telly on and change the channel to BBC One. 
As you live in the northeast of England, the presenter for regional news show Look North's North East and Cumbria programme comes into full view. That was a mouthful to say. As you take that first bite of your hot meal, you witness a murder live on TV. A man dressed in all black and sporting a bushy beard and cap has just shot another man through a wooden fence. It was the first time a murder was shown on British television and it has lived in infamy ever since. The gunman was one Albert Dryden, a disgruntled landowner whose long-running beef with Derwentside District Council led to him becoming a murderer. Born into a large family on May 12, 1940, Albert Dryden would grow up to develop a love for all things World War II. It makes sense, seeing as he was born towards the start of it and lived through five years of it. His obsession with guns from that period led to him eventually being granted a firearm certificate at the age of 17. Now able to legally purchase firearms, Albert first bought a rifle before acquiring several other similar weapons. One source used during my research for this episode suggested that Albert told people he was shot in the head a year after he acquired his firearms license with a 22 caliber bullet, but the narrative stops there. If that story is true, it might make some of the rest of his story make sense, especially if the injury impacted his cognitive abilities, which it no doubt would have. When Albert was 20, his home was raided by the police due to him having what has been described as an arsenal-sized collection of illegal firearms. That raid perhaps had something to do with Albert threatening some neighbouring farmers with the aforementioned weapons. A year after the raid, Albert was in trouble with the law once more, but this time it wasn't because of his guns. Not directly, anyway. You see, Albert was somewhat of an amateur rocket scientist. No doubt by using the gunpowder from his gun ammunition, Albert claimed to have successfully launched rockets he'd built 98 times, with some going as high into the sky as 3 miles. He claimed to be able to achieve such a feat at a cost of just one shilling and sixpence, which equates to roughly £2 in 2023. Using his special secret fuel, Albert had planned on beating the then-amateur rocket flight record of 10 miles, with 14 being his target. He would achieve this by building a rocket based off an idea he'd read about in an American magazine. But his secret launching pad on Castleside Moor was soon discovered, and all his rocket launching plans were axed after police recovered parts of a German Luger automatic and rocket casings from a nearby field. A trip to court led to Albert being fined a total of £10 and 5 shillings, just short of 300 quid in 2023, after being found guilty of unlawfully manufacturing gunpowder. A frustrated 21-year-old Albert said, I'm going to get a job, save my money, and go to South America, where I can continue my experiments without interference. Argentina was said to be his destination of choice, but the move never came. Instead, he remained in his native county Durham, where he secured a job he loved working for the Concert Steelworks. It wasn't popular in the town, but the decision was made to close Concert Steelworks in 1980. Albert was one of almost 4,000 workers whose jobs were lost as a result, which immediately increased the town's unemployment rate to a whopping 35%, twice the national average. He did get a fair bit of redundancy money though, and chose to use it to rent some land on Eliza Lane in Buttsfield, a village five miles south of Albert's home on Priestman Avenue in Concert. 
A couple of years later, Albert was in a position to purchase the land outright, and four years after that, in 1988, is where this bizarre story really begins. That year, Albert, who also went by Bert and Albie by all accounts, decided to build a bungalow on his land. He'd already built two greenhouses, a shed and an archway at the entrance of his land, as well as parked a caravan on it in which he often stayed. In April of that year, the DIY enthusiast and self-confessed eccentric mentioned the planned build to Derwentside District Council's Principal Planning Officer, Harry Collinson. According to Albert, the conversation with Harry didn't end with the councilman explicitly stating that he was not allowed to build a bungalow on his land. On the contrary, Albert took Harry's supposed brushing off of his query as a green light to go ahead with it. Convinced that Albert would never go through with it because of the cost and scale of such a build, Harry essentially told him it was up to him as to whether he went through with it or not. There was no mention of having to demolish such a building upon completion of its construction. With no planning permission, Albert proceeded with the build, partly because of the conversation he'd had with Harry, but also because he seemed to recall hearing about someone else who had done the same by exploiting a loophole in the system. By building a similar bungalow beneath the ground surface, this other man had gotten away with not having planning permission. Albert took inspiration from that and began digging. He excavated a massive hole in the middle of his land, with reports suggesting that over 2,000 tonnes of earth were removed in the process. He then set about building the bungalow, which took 2,560 man-hours, according to Albert, which equated to almost an entire year. Once finished, or nearly finished, only the building's roof was above ground. When researching how much money Albert spent building the property, figures vary. We know that he used the remaining bulk of his redundancy money from Consit Steelworks, but the precise figure is not known. All I can say is that he spent between £5,000 and £13,000 on it, which is roughly between £13,000 and 33000 in 2023. Not bad. By 1989, Derwentside District Council had received its first complaints about the bungalow. The content of the complaints is not known, but Albert defended the building by insisting it was, in fact, a summer house that he'd built for his elderly mum. It certainly wasn't a residential dwelling that he planned to live in, so he said. Soon enough, Albert received a letter from Derwentside District Council's Chief Environmental Health Officer, Peter Hunter. It was ordering him to cease construction and to demolish the bungalow. Another building, I believe it was one of the greenhouses, was also to be demolished, but the other could be left due to how long it had been on the property. Based on his previous conversation with Harry Collinson, Albert thought perhaps the letter from Peter Hunter had been sent by mistake. As far as Albert was concerned, he had a gentleman's agreement with Harry, and he hadn't once attempted to stop him from building the bungalow, even after the work had begun, so he paid him a visit and showed him the letter. The man he previously got on with so well confirmed Albert's worst fears. The bungalow needed to be taken down. An appeal process followed, which Harry didn't attend. Had he done so, Albert believed he may have been allowed to keep the building on the grounds of using it for purposes other than residential. Keeping livestock in the building was one idea suggested, but it's one of those situations where one report states that was Albert's idea that the council rejected, whereas others state that the council offered Albert that chance and he refused it. The idiom he said, she said feels relevant here. Albert lost his initial appeal, but nothing changed for a couple of years. 
Here's an interview Albert did with Look North in January 1990. Are you prepared to knock it down? No. No, no, no. I might blow it down, dynamite it. Or blow it up. Or blow it up. But the council won't have any hand in it. I'll do it myself. And there'll be a full coverage. Will that be a sad day for you? Well, be a sad day, but... I have other things in mind. And what every penny it's cost here, it's going to cost Derwent's side 20 or 30 times that. The key phrase for me that Albert said during that interview was, I've other things in mind. It's easy to interpret what things mean with hindsight, but it certainly makes for uncomfortable listening once you know what he went on to do. That month, a public inquiry occurred in which Albert defended having built the bungalow after being fobbed off by the council officials when he showed them his plans for the building two years earlier. He did, however, admit that he had no planning permission, which ultimately led to him losing that appeal. Two months later, Albert was ordered to demolish the bungalow by Derwentside District Council and he had three months in which to do so. Sticking to his guns, pardon the pun, Albert informed the council of his intentions to appeal first at the High Court, and should that fail, the European Court of Human Rights. There's no way this is the end of it, Albert said. I want to appeal to the High Court in London, and if I lose there, I'll go all the way to Europe. That could take as long as five years, and in the meantime, I won't be moving a brick. If the council tries to come here and knock it down, they'll have to do it over my dead body. Again, a clear warning there at the end, which, with hindsight, perhaps should have been taken more seriously. Harry Collinson said of the notice, An enforcement notice now comes into effect, and that means Mr Dryden must remove the two buildings. The onus is on him to demolish them. If he doesn't do it within the time period of the notice, in this case three months, he'll be committing an offence and could be prosecuted in the magistrate's court. It was thought that Albert might relent in April 1990 when his beloved 83-year-old mum Nora passed away. She was, after all, the reason why Albert had begun building the bungalow in the first place. At least, that's a story he had given the council at his appeal inquiries. At this point, Albert seems to have resorted to delay tactics. Despite insisting he didn't have the heart to carry on fighting the council, the bungalow still stood. Albert then said he had raised a petition calling for the removal of the council's officials with over 100 names on it. Those who signed it believed this wasn't the first time the council had made drastic errors of judgement regarding planning permission in the countryside. By June, Albert was supposed to have demolished the bungalow, but owing to what he said was an injury suffered whilst demolishing another building, perhaps the greenhouse that was also ordered to be taken down, he had been unable to make a start on the bungalow. Fast forward to March 1991, and you probably won't be surprised to hear that not one brick had been removed from the bungalow, just like Albert had promised. His war against the council, specifically Harry Collinson, was escalated after Harry allegedly trespassed on Albert's land to take some unauthorised photos of the bungalow, at the same time harassing the landowner. That testimony is, of course, Albert's version of events. Growing more frustrated by the day, Harry said at that time, Mr Dryden will have to pull his bungalow down. It is as simple as that. The story will continue after these quick messages. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now, back to the story. We have finally arrived at what was referred to in the media as D-Day. Sick and tired of Albert's lack of movement regarding the taking down of his bungalow, the council decided to take what they considered to be a proactive approach. June 20th, 1991 was Demolition Day. Arriving at Eliza Lane with a low loader and an excavator at 8.45am, the council workman, fronted by Harry Collinson, who arrived 15 minutes later, waited for Albert to show his face. One of Harry's former colleagues, Peter Reynolds, has since said, All the necessary approvals were in place, and the council could have sent a bulldozer in the night and knocked down Dryden's bungalow without anybody knowing. Instead, Harry arranged for the demolition to take place during the day and notified Dryden in advance. Gary Willey of the Newcastle Evening Chronicle, who had been covering Albert's battle with the council for over two years, was present at the scene on D-Day, as was a camera crew from Look North. Tony Belmont was the reporter sent by Look North to cover the demolition. Gary Willey had a feeling that morning that something terrible was brewing in the air when he arrived at 8am. Knowing Albert more than most, he got the sense things were not going to end well for anyone involved. When Albert arrived shortly after Harry, he had fastened a gun holster to his hip and was holding a 455 Webley MK6 revolver, a vintage First World War gun. He wasn't bluffing either, the gun was fully loaded with live ammunition. With only a wooden fence that didn't look too dissimilar to a pallet separating Albert and Harry, the landowner made one final appeal to the councilman to stop the planned demolition. Albert insisted a planning inspector had recently sent a letter to his solicitor stating he would be taking a look at the bungalow in five weeks' time to decide whether or not it would be allowed to remain intact. However, Albert had no paperwork to back up his claims, so Harry was inclined not to believe him. Harry explained that the diggers would be accessing Albert's land through a fence and in order to prevent as little damage as possible, Albert was offered the chance to dismantle it himself. Concerns were then raised by Albert about some of the trees near the fence and how they were subject to preservation orders before he gave Harry one final warning. He said, You might not be around to see the outcome of this disaster. You have been warned. If you had any sense, you would go away and wait five weeks. You are making a sad decision. In an awkward period of silence, captured entirely by Look North's TV cameras, Harry's last words were then captured on film. Looking at Derek, the cameraman, Harry, who was wearing a white hard hat, said, Can you get a shot of this gun? As the camera pans to Albert, who by that point was already aiming the revolver at Harry, the disgruntled landowner looks around briefly, including looking directly into the camera, before raising his gun into a firing position and aiming it at Harry's chest. He then pulls the trigger, which took everyone by complete surprise. Less than 10 seconds passed between Harry uttering his last words and Albert pulling the trigger. Harry fell to the ground instantly, landing in a ditch. The full video is not available to view online, naturally, but in total, Albert reportedly fired 10 shots. 
After that first shot, Albert climbed through the fence as everyone else fled the scene and did their best to get out of the firing line. A second shot to Harry's chest was followed by several sporadic shots fired seemingly at random, although it would later be revealed that Albert was aiming for Michael Dunstan, the Derwentside District Council solicitor with whom he also had a grudge. Michael was lucky enough to escape each of Albert's bullets, but Tony Belmont, the Look North reporter I briefly mentioned earlier, and PC Stephen Campbell weren't so lucky. PC Campbell was shot in the lower back and Tony was shot in the right forearm. In the immediate aftermath of the shooting, a bleeding Tony Belmont maintained his professionalism and continued reporting to Derek, the cameraman. Here's a clip of Tony speaking soon after he was shot in the arm. We were standing... We were standing watching what was going on. The chief planner um, was trying to persuade the chap to, to uh, move out the way and let the digger go in. And then uh, a shot rang out, the chief planner fell to the ground and I, uh, I heard, felt a shot in the arm and I've clearly been shot here in the arm. I'm now hopefully gonna get some medical treatment. Uh, policeman was also shot in the buttock here and uh, uh, and the councillor was shot in the chest. It's unreal how both men kept their calm before they were taken to Shotley Bridge Hospital to recover. Once everyone had dispersed, Albert is said to have sent two shots into the low loader, two more into the excavator, and another into a red Ford Fiesta, which perhaps belonged to Harry or Michael. He then walked back over to Harry, who by that point had already likely been killed, and shot one more futile round into the councilman's brain. With hordes of police officers on their way to the site, Albert retreated to his caravan, where he held up for a good few hours. Negotiators had to be brought in, as did firearms officers. Eventually, Albert was removed from his caravan and arrested, and even though he didn't willingly give himself up or come out voluntarily, not one more shot was fired by anyone involved. It would later be revealed that the Webley revolver was unlicensed, and it certainly wasn't the only weapon in Albert's cache. As Albert was questioned by officers at Concert Police Station, three bomb disposal teams were called up from Catrick Garrison, as it was believed the bungalow may have been booby-trapped. All the while, Harry Collinson's body remained where he'd fallen until he was finally removed from the murder scene. Harriet was 46 when he was murdered by Albert and left behind two children, whom he'd had with his ex-wife. He'd spent 16 years working at the council and was a much-loved and highly respected member of the team. The bomb disposal teams from Catrick didn't spend long at the site before being told to stand down. The decision was made to call for the Royal Engineers, who'd be making their way up to Buttsfield from Kent, as they were the real experts when it came to searching for and disposing of explosives. A ridiculous amount of guns and explosives were said to have been found inside the bungalow, but no booby traps were present, and nobody got harmed while searching it. By now informed of his charges... When he was told that all of his shots had missed Michael Dunstan, Albert replied by saying, My only regret is that I did not get Dunstan. Albert Dryden's murder trial began on March 16th, 1992 at Newcastle Crown Court. In charge of proceedings was Mrs Justice Ebsworth, whose jury consisted of six men and six women. The jury was shown the full uncut video of the murder taken by Look North cameraman Derek. Albert was charged with murdering Harry Collinson and attempting to murder Michael Dunstan, Tony Belmont and PC Stephen Campbell. His defence took the diminished responsibility approach in the hope of receiving a lesser sentence of manslaughter. 
Albert claimed to have blacked out during the shooting and only came to when he reached his caravan. He was of the belief that he was about to suffer a seizure or have a brain hemorrhage, so he rapidly searched for some painkillers in the hope of easing his violent headache. Denying murder, Albert said he sometimes heard voices due to the amount of stress he'd suffered throughout his battle with the council. The jury wasn't having any of it. They rejected the defence's case and found Albert guilty of murdering Harry. They also found him guilty of attempted murder regarding Michael Dunstan and wounding with intent regarding Tony Belmont and PC Stephen Campbell. Albert was handed a life sentence on April 1st, 1992 by Mrs Justice Ebsworth, who had the following to say in her closing statement. In your attempt to kill the solicitor who had acted for the planning authority, you shot and seriously injured a journalist who was there carrying out his duties and shot and wounded a police officer who similarly was performing his duty. It is entirely clear that the state of your mind was, on June 20th, abnormal but not abnormal to an extent as to diminish your responsibility for that which you did. Albert launched an appeal two years after he was sentenced, but it was rejected. He wanted his murder charge to be reduced to that of manslaughter. By October of that year, two council workers present on the day of the murder were handed out of court settlements due to the trauma they suffered after the fact. Trevor Field and Raymond Chetter were standing just 20 yards away from Albert when he began firing his gun. A lot of people in the County Durham area felt that an injustice had been done when Albert was sent to prison for life. Free Albert Dryden posters used to be a rather common sight in the area in which the council held power. During his two plus decades in prison, Albert wrote letters to Roy Collinson, Harry's brother, in an attempt to convince him that he wasn't truly to blame for having killed Harry. Roy said, Not once did he show any remorse, culpability or regret for what he had done. He looked to blame everyone but himself. At one stage, he even tried to blame the vehicles that were going to knock down his house, claiming they were not taxed or something ridiculous like that. In October 2017, Albert's health was in drastic decline, so after having spent 26 years behind bars, he was released and placed in a residential care home to see out his life. Durham County Councillor Alex Watson said at the time, He's been released as he has had a severe stroke and it's left him unable to talk. He's not in a good condition, but is recovered enough to be released and placed in a residential care home where there will be a measure of security. Albert's freedom lasted less than a year. On the morning of September 15th, 2018, Albert died after suffering another stroke. He was 78 years old. And that was a story of British murderer Albert Dryden. Thanks again, Nick Carroll, for suggesting that case. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. I've had a huge influx of new reviews this past week. Thank you, everyone. I've got 11 to read out, so please bear with me. The Marvelous Mr. B73 left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com titled A Darn Good Podcast. It reads, I have to say, I love my true crime podcast. This one is right up there with Sword and Scale, but less brutal and shocking. Stuart tells the story really well and gets you hooked on the story from the start of the podcast. Stephen Mason left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com titled Fantastic. It reads, Fantastic podcast, keep up the great work. You come across so well. Would like if you'd done more Scottish murders. I'll bear that in mind, Stephen. Debbie S0511 left a five-star review on Apple Podcast titled Wow. It reads, I've just finished listening to all of the episodes and what an absolutely great podcast this is. And they aren't too long, which is great so that you can listen to them in one sitting. 
keep up the good work. Georgia left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com titled The Best Podcast. It reads, So happy I came across this podcast. It's so informative, straight to the point, and loves Stuart's personality. He seems like a really down-to-earth bloke. Enjoy the icebreakers and facts about the town relating to the crimes. Daughter's little accent is cute too. Case suggestion, Hilda Marchbank. Keep them coming, Stuart, my favourite podcaster. Love from Western Australia. I've added that case to my spreadsheet for you, Georgia. Jodie Emson left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com titled Simply the Best. It reads, I absolutely adore your podcasts. The only podcast I can listen to from start to finish and actually retain the information. Your voice is so lovely to listen to. Keep up the good work, Stu. Sarkins 2 left a five-star review on Apple Podcast titled Fantastic Podcast. It reads, I love this podcast. There is no waffle and the crimes are delivered in exactly the right way. I look forward to each release. Lily from Southern Sweden left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com titled Hello from Sweden. It reads, Hello Stu, I know you know who I am. I'm Lily from Southern Sweden. I just wanted to tell you that you do such an excellent job with the podcast. It's one of my favourites. Your shows are so interesting and I especially love the interviews you are doing. Best regards, Lily. My dinner is getting coals. Probably should say cold. Left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts Australia titled Brilliant. It reads, Wow, so good. Short and to the point with good research facts with a bit of humour. Jamie Louise Didlock recommended British Murders on Facebook by saying, Great podcast. Just listening to the Moors Murders, a.k.a. Moore's Murders. My dad was one of the coppers that took Mara back to the Moors to find the bodies. Anyway, love your podcast. Jemsy Lou recommended British Murders on Facebook by saying, Great podcast with a perfect amount of facts, history and content, whilst remaining respectful to the victims. I especially love your daughter's little section with daddy facts, so cute. Your podcasts make mundane jobs, housework and dog walks so much less of a chore. By far, my favourite podcast. And finally, George Thorpe recommended British Murders on Facebook by saying, Great show, great content. Enjoy the first eight seasons. Now on season nine. Thanks. Thank you, the marvellous Mr. B73, Stephen, Debbie, Georgia, Jodie, Sarkins, 2, Lily, My Dinner is Getting Calls, Jamie, Jemsy and George for leaving the show such lovely reviews. Suppose you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode. You can do so on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser or at BritishMurders.com. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or donate on a one-off basis via Buy Me A Coffee, you can find the links for each on my website. Thank you and welcome to my newest Patreon members, Kira McManus and Shannon Feeney. Please continue emailing case suggestions to BritishMurdersPodcast at gmail.com or message me via social media. You'll not only get the episode covered eventually, but you'll get a cheeky shout-out for your efforts. And that's it for another episode. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, cheerio. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com.